Lord, today we do uh, desire to glorify your name and that you be lifted up in your word. We just also pray for accuracy of understanding and communication, that your word would in fact speak clearly to us, and I do not want to get in the way of that, and I just pray that you would use our time, as was already prayed, to uh, conform us more and more to your image and give us more equipping to be able to share with the lost world and those that are unbelievers that we have contact with, that we may take advantage of opportunities that you give us. So we commit our time asking that you would have your way this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning I'd like to take a look in our study of the book of Romans, passage that I think many of you have probably memorized and are very familiar with. And if you have memorized it, you've heard it used often, and particularly in evangelistic settings. But uh, I'm going to bring out a little bit of the background and the Roman situation that Paul writes to, because I think that's important in understanding this. But just more by way of uh, introduction, use the photograph of Billy Graham. He has reached millions of people, and I think millions of people have come to a genuine and a real relationship with Jesus Christ through that ministry. So he's had probably the greatest evangelistic ministry than anyone that I know of in history, actually. And I think many of those conversions, if not most of them, were authentic and real, and God used him in a mighty way. And I say that by way of introduction because he has popularized, I think, a viewpoint of Romans 10, 9, and 10, I think well-meaning and sincerely, but I think it's not quite what uh, the passage teaches, and that's a little bit of what we'll get into. So I don't want to in any way diminish the millions of people or the ministry of Billy Graham and what he's done, but all of us are fallible, all of us make mistakes, and hopefully as we get into the Word, we can uh, refine our thinking on different uh, passages. You're also familiar, this same slide, I've got the Roman Road. How many of you have used what's called the Roman Road of Evangelism? And it's called the Roman Road because all of the passages come out of the book of Romans, and it's kind of a pathway to uh, leading people to Christ. It's It's a good string of passages that lead essentially to the gospel or into the gospel message or part of the gospel message. Most of you uh, probably have used it in some way or another or at least parts of it. Any comments on that? Any? You're familiar with it, right? What's the first thing that you say along the lines of the Roman road of evangelism? Anyone got it? 323? Yes. Yeah. Romans 3.23, which essentially is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's kind of the starting point. Romans 3.23, somebody give another verse. And I think even this one is a little bit out of context, but the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fall short, and the penalty of that is spiritual and eternal death. And the third aspect, anyone venture the... uh, Either the passage or... I had it yesterday. You had it? Romans 10? Uh, that's the fourth one. Uh, Jesus, okay. Jesus paid the debt. Mm-hmm. He died on the cross. He paid the wages that we deserve to pay, the wages of sin. One of the passages that is used is uh, Romans 5, 8. And then the one that Connie just mentioned is salvation is by faith. And uh, in order to... Sometimes they'll say to confirm your salvation, you should proclaim it or confess it. And Billy Graham made very famous the walk of the aisle to the front where in a public confession of faith, people uh, prayed to a counselor and that would confirm their, their salvation. And then number five that people have also used is Romans 10.13, also in the same context that we're talking about. So... In this context, we 
have two of the five points of what's commonly referred to as the Roman road, calling on the name of the Lord for salvation. Now, 623, I think it's in a context of sanctification, so that one is a little bit out of context, but I wouldn't necessarily discourage. I think there's a principle that applies broader than just sanctification, so I wouldn't discourage people. In fact, I wouldn't uh, even make a big point out of uh, 4 and 5 as well, but we want to be precise and uh, take a look at the context of Romans 10, 9, and 10. Salvation is definitely by faith, nothing that we can do, and I think that is part of 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10. And in an application, we can call on the name of the Lord, even though 10.13, we'll see that context. We may probably won't get that far today, but it's a Jewish context. In fact, all of this, chapter 10, 9 through 11, all of this is in Jewish context, and I think uh, you need to take that into account to fully understand Romans 10.9 through Thirteen. In fact, all of chapters 9 through chapter 11 of the book of Romans. So that's kind of what I want to get into. And I think the passage is rarely taught in its context. And I think if that's when that happens, sometimes you miss some important aspects of it. And in some cases, you might miss some very important aspects so we'll take a, a look at Romans 10, 9, and 10 today. The main passage, the main division of the book of Romans is chapters 1 through 8. This is after the introduction where the main theme is God's provision of God's righteousness for a lost, condemned humanity. So he's completed that. And within that, he also deals with how does that righteousness work itself out in everyday living. That's chapters 6 through 8. In other words, how do we grow in God's righteousness? And then in chapter 9, he's still talking about the righteousness of God, but now he's speaking more in terms of a, a major situation that existed in the first century. It persists to this day in that we need to have a proper perspective on a people that God has identified as his people. So Paul, in 9 through 11, is vindicating his righteousness in his dealings with two particular groups of people, Jew and Gentile. And we've completed looking at his area of chapter 9 through verse 29 that deals with God sovereignly working in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And he goes and focuses on Israel's origin. So he goes to their origin of God choosing them out of all of the nations to be a particular people, starting with the very first individual that he calls out from the nations, Abraham. Abraham becomes the father of the nation of Israel. They are chosen. And there's many passages. We looked at some in Deuteronomy last, last time. So we completed that, and we're in chapter 10. So God, in his sovereignty, can choose whomever he so desires. He chose Israel for a particular purpose. In the new era, after the coming of Messiah and the rejection of Messiah, God has, has built what he calls his church, and they are a chosen people as well. And Israel is under discipline because they rejected their Messiah. And that's the main thrust of chapter 9, verse 30, through the end of chapter 10. So he's explaining and showing that God is perfectly righteous in choosing a people who were not his people and setting aside his people that he identified as his people. But that... Discipline is not permanent and is temporary, and we've been talking about the doctrine of replacement theology and how that is not a biblical doctrine. In fact, it's a false doctrine. So God has not cast away Israel permanently, but they have a future restoration. Chapter 11. 
So the church has not replaced Israel. That's a false teaching. And that doctrine essentially disregards chapter 11 or minimizes it. So we haven't got there, but we'll get there shortly, Lord willing, that uh, there's a future for the nation of Israel. In fact, it's kind of exciting to see what God is doing in the nation of Israel today. And you can see bits and pieces of God working. And he may, in fact, I think he is setting the stage for this restoration that chapter 11 describes that Paul anticipates 2,000 years ago. So we've been going over that in some uh, detail, and I've been reminding you of these elements relating to Israel and the context of chapters 9, 10, and 11. And this is very, very important to know that the main theme here is Israel because it's going to influence how we understand each of the parts of chapters 9 through 11, and particularly a passage that is so familiar and so often heard that sometimes we we miss context and it's not brought out very clearly. So the context, the broader context of the chapter, we've been talking about Israel as God's chosen people. They're under discipline right now, but God is going to bring them back into a saving relationship. All of Israel in a corporate sense, will be saved in a future time when God is completing a plan for Gentiles in terms of uh, the body of Christ. In the first century, the gospel went out to the Gentiles, and many were responding. In fact, many more were responding amongst the Gentiles than amongst the nation of Israel. So this is another reason Paul has to explain and vindicate what's going on Why are so few Jews, as you progress through the first century, fewer and fewer Jewish people and more and more Gentile people are receiving this gospel? So he has to defend the gospel, which is part of what he's doing in chapter 10 and explaining it. This gospel message is is a genuine message. In fact, it has its roots in uh, the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. So he quotes quite frequently from them to uh, alert his Jewish audience. Now, he's writing to the few believers that have responded in order for them to be able to communicate these concepts to their unbelieving Jewish brethren. So, the setting aside of Israel, chapter 10, is giving, from the human perspective, from Israel's perspective, some of the major reasons there. And The fourth thing there is righteousness is made available on a broad basis, not through exclusively Israel, but now through Jesus Christ to both Jew and Gentile, righteousness has been made available. That's the thrust of the passages we've been looking at more recently. So God has set aside Israel not only because this is part of a bigger plan, a sovereign electing plan, but also because uh, there's human responsibility to respond to not only the call, but the word of God, the H on the title there is human responsibility. So at the end of chapter 9 and in chapter 10, he's going to emphasize Israel's responsibility in their failure, in their pursuit of righteousness. They have a zealousness for the things of God or for the law, but it's a zealousness that stumbles over a central aspect of the law, of which the law points to, and the ultimate goal of the law is the Messiah, and they stumbled over that. That's chapter 9, 30 through 33. And in their pursuit, they've substituted their own righteousness, a self-righteousness, because they failed to know the perfections of God or the character of God or the glory of God or God himself. And in that, they substitute their own righteousness. We saw that in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 10. And we also have been... Looking at uh, 10.4, where they failed to realize that uh, the Messiah, 
Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the Messiah, proved himself to be and fulfilled the messianic prophecies was where righteousness was to end in him for those who believe in him. So they missed the purpose of the law of directing hearts to the Messiah. So just a quick outline of the same thing here. The outline 930-33, Israel pursued a zealous pursuit of righteousness but stumbled over their Messiah. And then they have problems perceiving that righteousness, chapter 10, 1 through 4. And we're in the paragraph 10, 5 through 13, where Israel has had problems accessing a righteousness that is very, very near. That's one of the points he's making here. It's available. We've looked at that, 5 through 8. In fact, we'll pick up in verse 8. That righteousness that the Old Testament speaks about. It speaks about a righteousness that can be pursued on the basis of law that no one is capable of maintaining. In other words, you cannot live on the basis of law. You will fail. That's one of the purposes of the law is to show the sinfulness of man and the inability not only to reach God, but to live a life of righteousness It's a frustrating life of failure. That was verse 5. But there's an alternative that is also contained even in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 30. So we looked at the context of Deuteronomy 30, speaking to the second generation. There's already been a generation that was set aside and disciplined in the Old Testament. That was that first generation that came out of Egypt. All of them died in the wilderness. And at the end of the 40 years, shortly before Moses died, Deuteronomy is a re-giving of the law. That's what the word deuteros, deutero, means to or second. Namas is law, a second law or second giving of the law. So it's a repeating, a reminder to the second generation of what God revealed at Mount Sinai to the first generation. And Paul is quoting some of that, or at least alluding, if not quoting, taking some of the language from Deuteronomy 9.4, emphasizing the grace aspect. Chapter 7, chapter 10, we looked at those verses. Chapter 14, and there's others as well. And then he's focusing on Deuteronomy, mainly chapter 30, but I gave you the context that you have to start in 28 where he predicts all of Israel's future, essentially. So at the heart of the history of Israel, you can go to Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 30, and you'll have a preview that God gives to that second generation of all of Jewish history. And if you look at the details of Deuteronomy 28, Israel has experienced the blessings of God. And those blessings have been in those very short periods of time where they have been obedient to the law. Not many times in their history. In fact, mainly characterized by disobedience. And we have a detailed description also in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy of the disciplines that would come on them. And that's a review or a preview of Israel's history throughout their time. So God gives them kind of a preview of all of their future history, even before they're a nation. They are simply tribes in the wilderness awaiting the conquest, the book of Joshua. He even predicts that uh, there's going to come a time where the disobedience is irreversible and God will intervene to expel the children of Israel out of the land And they've been expelled two times, 586 by the Babylonians, 70 AD by the Romans, and the nation was utterly destroyed on both those occasions. So you have specific predictions. In fact, it talks about, he uses the word exile, he uses the word captivity in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and chapter 30. He also predicts a restoration, and that's where Paul is drawing the language, a restoration to the land, and partly fulfilled when they return in preparation for the Messiah before the first century. 
But then in 70 AD, they were exiled again. And in 1948, they returned and reestablished. And God may be setting the stage for the final and ultimate restoration. He also predicts that he will deal with the nations, the surrounding nations. And that has been partially fulfilled in the history of Israel as well. And what has not been fulfilled is an ultimate blessing in chapter 30. And that's described in some detail. We looked at that a little bit last time. And that's the context that uh, Paul draws upon in uh, Romans chapter 10. And he takes some of the language from that, that passage. And he quotes specifically Deuteronomy 30 verses 12 and 13 in uh, 10, 6 and 7. And in that he states, but the righteousness which is on the basis of, of faith, speaks as follows. And then here's wording, at least. They're not direct quotes. He takes languages and language. In fact, do not say in your heart probably comes from chapter 9. And then he says, who will ascend into the heavens? That's out of Deuteronomy 30, verse 12, I believe. Then he interprets it or applies it probably uh, applies it as a better description, that is to bring Christ down. In other words, in similar way, in the time of Moses, you didn't have to ascend Sinai to get the, the law. God delivered the law, brought it down by Moses, and you don't have to ascend to heaven to get it, to God himself. And neither do you have to do the same in the first century. That is to bring Christ down. You don't have to seek for Messiah. Messiah came. So he's alluding to the the fulfillment, if you will, or an example of God speaking through his Messiah, Christ came, or the incarnation. Or who will descend? That comes out of Deuteronomy as well. Who would descend into the abyss? And we talked a little bit about that, the lower parts of the earth, or confinement, place of confinement. And then he concludes again, or applies it, that is, for the second time, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, we have a resurrection as well. So the ascending that he describes is no need to do these miraculous acts to find this righteousness because Christ brought it in the incarnation. No need to do a, an extraordinary search in the abyss, place of fallen angels and lost souls. Second time, that is... The application, Christ has raised from the dead. So he's bringing it home to the first century. And this is where we left off. But what does it say? And he's quoting. In fact, this is the next verse in Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. And he's quoting from that. What does it say? And this is kind of the main point that he's getting at here. The word is near, the, the word of God, the, in this context, the rhema, or the audible word, the spoken word, the word that is near, that you can hear. In fact, it is in your mouth. You can speak it. It is in your heart. You've meditated on it. You've listened to uh, the preaching of it. You've heard it. It is penetrating you. It is right there. It is near. It is in the first century. Messiah spoke it. He delivered it. The apostles are now preaching it. In fact, that's what he says in the next phrase. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. It's right here. You want to hear it? Go to the synagogue. You'll hear it every day or every Shabbat, every Sabbath. You can hear it. You can uh, read the scrolls. It comes out of your mouth as you read it. It's ever present. That's the, the thought. So, the accessibility is the point he's making here. The accessibility in the first century to the word that brings righteousness. He calls it a word of faith. That's why I titled the outline sheet from this phrase right here. That word of faith is very near. So he's going to apply it. In fact, he uses that little word that is. See that word there? That is again. That's the third time that he uses it. It is near. So the law in the time of the children of Israel in Deuteronomy, that law was near. The Mosaic law was right there. 
and the application in terms of the first century, that is the word of faith that Paul and the apostles are are preaching. So it's accessible, it's available. Any Jew in the first century that had a heart to know God didn't have to do any extraordinary act, didn't have to try to do the impossible, which is to keep every aspect of the law, because if you fail in one aspect, you failed in the totality of the law. So nothing extraordinary. It is there. It is available. It's accessible is the whole point. So 9 and 10 focuses on accessing that word of faith. Now, again, I'm going to stress this is in a context of Israel failing to access it. And in the context of this problem of Israel and the point that he's getting at is this is what you missed. It's so easy. It's accessible. It's right there. That's the focus of 9 and 10. So in a sense, it is an evangelistic message, but you don't want to overlook the uh, idea that it is also a call to a particular Jewish audience, or it's framed for the purpose of a Jewish audience. It's one long sentence that begins in verse 8. That's why I put the whole thing on the screen. And if you've been with us for any time, I won't do this this time, but we sometimes break down a long sentence like this into its parts so that it can be understandable. Sometimes we miss the thrust of it. So, One of the first mistakes that's made in even quoting Romans 10, 9, and 10 is to miss the fact that it's tied to verse 8. Notice there's a comma after verse 8, and it doesn't start a new sentence in in verse 9. And the sentence runs all the way. There's the period after verse 10. So that's the immediate context, the nearness of the word, And the application that Paul draws, the word of faith that they're preaching, in other words, the gospel message that Paul is preaching, and if you read on in the extended context, that word is being proclaimed to both Jew and Gentile. And I think the emphasis in this context is because that Jewish, well, not the audience, but the nation of Israel, those that have not accepted uh, Jesus as Messiah, they have missed it in spite of the fact that it is very, very near. It's right there. They have brothers that have trusted in Jesus Christ. They have relatives that have received in their mouths and in their hearts this word of faith that was preached by the early church that was almost entirely Jewish. It wasn't until later in the book of Acts when uh, Samaritans began to come and uh, Gentiles, uh, Acts chapter 10, Cornelius being one of the first. And then later we had others. But Jewish people in general were rejecting this. So in 9, the word of faith, that, now he's going to expand, I think, the concept of the word of faith, this this message that the the apostles are preaching, and he's going to give a little detail concerning that, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and I think it's important to uh, look at what he's talking about when it talks about confessing with your mouth here, Jesus as Lord. Now, he's taking the wording right out of Deuteronomy. That This is the sequence, confessing and believing. Now, in verse 10, he's going to reverse it. Now, he's not giving a, well, let me say this carefully. He's not specifically defining, that's probably the best word here. He's not defining the gospel message. He's laying out some of the elements related to it. And I think one of the mistakes that is made in teaching this passage This passage is used as almost a definition of the gospel message, and I don't think that's the intent of Paul. And I think if we do that, we slightly miss what Paul is doing in the passage. 
and I don't think this is brought out very often. You probably will have, you probably never have heard any of this before. And that's why I hate to get into it is because it's, this verse is so common that to go against it almost, I don't know. Are you saying that it's used like um, steps you're supposed to take and you're saying that it really isn't that? I Yes, that would be another way. It's not a definition of the gospel message. It does not define the gospel message. And I think too often uh, that's how it is used. I so think what does it do? It gives elements of it. Uh, yeah, I'll get into it, and I think you you might be able to see it if I can make it clear. All right? Anything to add? Uh, feel free to jump in here, Nate. I think Nate and I are probably the only two that would teach this that you all know of. And who listens to us? Right, Nate? <clears throat> I think there's others that they might know at all. <laughs> but I haven't heard your approach yet. So. Well, one of them's dead, though. <laughs> Okay. Well, what you're suggesting is that this particular passage, it's not intended to be some form of mantra or or recipe uh, for this is how you get saved. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Jim, go ahead. He's alive. uh, Yeah, good correction. He's more alive than we are, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay. Excuse me for interrupting him. What I meant is uh, he's no longer with us. Thank you. I always uh, there's our. Uh, I can see you brought your uh, Berean citizenship card. That's very good. <laughs> okay. So don't look at this verse as some of you have said as a recipe or as defining the gospel message. It does contain some of the elements of it, and I think it can be used from that perspective. But uh, I think if you use it. As a recipe, as I think Jeff said, uh, then I think you're you're misinterpreting a little bit or at least some aspects of it. So confessing with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believing in your heart. So that introduces to all these different ways that this verse is used. And I think some of them wrongly. I think it's wrong very at the very beginning to introduce two conditions for salvation. In other words, believing and confessing. And there are some evangelicals, even Bible conservative, Bible conservative teachers introduce two conditions for salvation, believing and confessing. Now, who wants to give a refutation why this passage does not give two conditions for salvation. Anyone? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That's one passage. And what's the thrust of that? By faith are you saved through grace. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. And confessing could be viewed as a something that you do, a work. You know, some say you have to believe and be baptized. That's a work. Now, most of, none of you would do that. Any other refutations before I give probably the clearest refutation? That Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is an excellent one. What else? Uh, Ray, yes. uh, just, just so we're clear, uh, I believe it's in John 6 where the folks approach Jesus and say, what is the work of God? And Jesus says, the work of God is to believe. So we need to be careful when we use the word work and the word believe together. Right. Uh, some folks get confused there. I don't think that Jesus was equating belief with work. I think he was simply answering the question. Yeah, and he's saying the work has already been done. It's it's God's work. And we believe, Titus, uh, we believe that. Yeah, work. And, that, that and that even just fits within the greater context of John 6. And John 6 makes it clear, uh, election. Okay. And the broader context of John is justification by faith alone. Nowhere in John do you find believe and confess. About a hundred times in John, it's simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is by faith and faith alone. That's the theme of the Gospel of John. 
that's the whole point of the book of Romans as well. There's no uh, no works or nothing that you do in the book itself, the immediate context, the book of Romans. You could do, say the same thing as uh, Bill did in, in, in Ephesians, and particularly Ephesians 2. This is the only place where you have confess. So justification or if you want to use the word salvation, is by faith and faith alone. Now, Titus 3.5 might fit, too. Say that again? Titus 3.5. Yeah, Titus. In fact, there's lots of other passages as well. Titus 3.5. So justification is by faith alone, apart from anything that we do. So it's not confessing. It's not confessing as a second work or second aspect of salvation. Right. Go ahead, Pat. So it almost seems like the very next verse that the um, the confession is a result of uh, believing in your heart, for because it says, "For with the heart a person believes, which results in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, and that's what result." And it's not the confession that results in salvation, but it's the believing in the heart. Is that? Yeah, I think I think you've got it mostly right in that, and we'll get to that. And there's another major thing that we'll talk about in terms of the word that he uses there. Uh, he uses two words, righteousness and salvation. We'll get into that. Good point, though. Hey, Ray. Go ahead. Hey, Ray. Go ahead. I'm, I'm just looking at a book that I've used, The Four Spiritual Laws. Mm-hmm. And Law 4 is pretty clear about... Uh, Faith only. Yeah. I, and I've used this before, uh, and I like it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of good uh, things there. And again, that little booklet has been used to bring millions of people to a saving relationship with Christ. But I think there's also stress in that four laws of uh, confessing. And most of that is on this verse here. Most of that is based on the verse that we're looking at. Okay, another thing that people do, because there seems, in other words, those that say, no, there's not two conditions, but in order to kind of harmonize this passage, they say something along the lines of believing and confessing are synonymous. In other words, they're two aspects of the same side of the coin. Two, uh, they're, they go together. In other words, they're synonymous. And I think that also kind of misses some of the, the Jewish context that we have here. And when you do that, I think what you're doing is you're taking away a little bit of the meaning of confession here, particularly in this context. Now, I'm going to expand upon that as we get further in there. So just to kind of refute it, just off the the bat, I think to make that uh, connection, if you will, or to see the two as synonymous distorts at least the idea of confession, if not both. Thirdly, uh, go ahead. Um, is it possible that Paul is simply borrowing from one of Jesus' comments about confessing before men? Uh, something, and I'm paraphrasing terribly here, uh, but if you confess me before a man, I will confess you before God, and if you reject me before man, etc. I think there's a connection, but it's, it's slightly different. You'll, I think you'll see when we get into it what, what Jesus is doing and what Paul is doing. And remember, Jesus, what kind of an audience is he speaking to? Jewish. Jewish audience, Linda tells us. Can and you go back to the previous slide? Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, others will say that uh, the believing, in fact, Steve alluded a little bit to this, the, the believing results in a public, in other words, they're, they're distinct, but uh, one leads to the other. And I think that's true, but I think there's more going on here than just simply that. That's, this is one way of harmonizing these two seemingly two conditions for salvation, one resulting in public con- confession. I think another thing that is used in the salvation, confessing Jesus as Lord, lordship, salvation will camp on the lordship aspect And I think, again, you have to look at the broader context that we haven't even gotten into yet. I'll get into that, hopefully, before our time runs out. Ray, just a question, if I I can. 
Um, are they trying to, you know, I look at this and, and they say, well, if you don't live out, I'm thinking of James, you know, mm-hmm. you can say this, but if you're not doing it, then what good is any faith? Or if you're, and how are they trying to kind of resolve uh, a mental ascent? How many people do we know who say, Jesus is my Lord, but you never see it in their life? Are they, are we... How is all this fitting together where there should be an aspect of change in a person's life if if a person has truly accepted Jesus Christ as Lord? And I would, and, and go ahead. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that is part of the motivation of Lordship salvation. In other words, there should be evidence of an invisible inward conversion. And confessing is one of those. And if it's not there, then there's good reason to doubt the genuineness of that. So so that's common. But again, I think it is missing an element here that I haven't got into yet. I'm, I'm kind of building here. I'm, I'm kind of leading you down a trail here, if you will. Right. Is it, uh, wouldn't it continuum of that be... Uh, perseverance of the state of the saints. Yes, yeah, that's related, yeah. But I think it's reading slightly at least an idea into the text that may not necessarily be the thrust that Paul is talking about. Yes, he is focusing on lordship, but lordship has a particular application in this context, in a Jewish context that I hope to bring out as we get further here. The Jewish audience, and I think this is what Jesus is doing as well, Jesus is trying to demonstrate and convince, now he, I think he does it adequately, that he is sent from the Father. He is the Son of Man out of uh, the book of Daniel. He is the Messiah. He is Deity. He is Yahweh, which the word Lord in the Old Testament is tied with Yahweh. So the Jews, in order to understand and to believe in Jesus, had to believe in Jesus as Lord. In other words, as Yahweh, as God, God in the flesh, the incarnation. And I think that's what Paul is stressing here for a Jewish audience and I'm glad Jeff brought out what Jesus stresses to his Jewish audience. They needed to recognize that he was the Messiah and that the Messiah that is described in the Old Testament is equated with Yahweh. Some passages uh, make an equivalence there. Yahweh and the Messiah, they're the same. The deity of the Messiah, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the deity of Jesus is the stress of confessing Jesus as God confessing Jesus as Messiah. And Paul uses the word Lord, which in a Jewish mind, all of those should go together. All of those should be uh, equivalent terms. So I think that's the stress. Not lordship salvation, but a Jew needs to confess that. And let's get further into that. And also to recognize that uh, that Messiah, that Jesus that God raised him from the dead. And if you go back to the beginning of Romans in verse 4, that validates everything that Jesus said, the resurrection. It proves that Jesus is, in fact, everything that he claimed, everything that the gospel writers record about him. It uh, essentially uh, gives the Father's uh, validation, is probably the best word, that Jesus is in fact God and that that God raised him from the dead. And then it says, if you do that, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now he uses the the word uh, sozo here, the, the Greek word that is commonly translated to be saved. Now, I think a mistake, another mistake that is made is to equate righteousness in this context, equating the two with salvation. Did you hear that? 
I think it's a mistake to equate righteousness with salvation. So let's talk about that. And uh, this is about as far as we'll be able to make it. Maybe I can get through verse 10. I think what Paul is doing here, Paul is precise in the book of Romans. We've gone into excruciating, painful detail concerning the word justification. And last time I gave you a real quick review of the Greek word there. Dikaiao, the verb form related to dikaios, the noun form relating, they're all related to righteousness. Justification is the trusting or the believing in Jesus as Lord, basically, or what Jesus claimed and what he did, believing in that. Then we are instantaneously but declared righteous. We are justified. Same idea, same word. Paul is consistent when he uses righteousness. Now, he could be using it in a outworking of righteousness here in a little bit of a sanctification sense, but it has to do with this idea of being justified or the uh, accessing of righteousness. When he uses the word salvation in the book of Romans, he uses it differently. They're not equivalent. And let me remind you the term. Here are the Greek words. And I used this slide, what was it, four years ago when we were in Romans 1, 116, where he uses this word for the very first time. And I stressed back then that the word in this context, and if I didn't stress it, I should have, he's speaking in the broadest sense of the idea of salvation, soteria or sozo in that Romans 116. Here are the two, the nouns soteria and sozo. And if you look up the usages, in fact, somebody look up Acts chapter 27. It is often used, in fact, more often in the Old Testament is the Hebrew equivalent used of salvation in a uh, physical danger sense. It's used when an invading army is coming and maybe God intervenes and saves the children of Israel. That has to do with uh, saving them from being conquered by an invading army. It's used very commonly in the uh, Old Testament of physical salvation from some physical danger, not just war, but other kinds. It's used commonly in terms of physical ailments or healing. In fact, it's used very commonly in the New Testament. It's The word is used in the New Testament 16 times for physical healing. Now, you don't know that either sozo or soteria are used there because it's translated to give the sense of physical healing. For example, Matthew 9, 21 and 22, For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. That's the word group sozo there. I will get well physically. And then verse 22, but Jesus turning and seeing her said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. He uses the word sozo. He's not talking about eternal destiny. You've been saved from hell here. He's talking about physical healing. And then also in that verse, at once the woman was made well. She was saved. You get it? Who's got Acts? Got chapter, you got Acts chapter twenty-seven. I've got it. Or yeah, read verse twenty and remember the context. Paul is on the way to Rome. He's on a ship. The Roman Empire is shipping him so that he will stand trial before the Roman Emperor. And remember the that's why I use the imagery on the slide there. The 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 boat is in a storm and they are doing everything they can to try to keep from being uh, shipwrecked. And what does verse 20 tell us? And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. Oh, they're all going to hell. No hope of salvation. Is that what the context talks about? Nope. Nope. The context has nothing to do with eternal destiny has nothing to do with anything spiritual. They're talking about all hope of us surviving this uh, storm. Skip to verse 31, since you're there, David. 
Same word, same context. 31. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Oh, he's got delivering a gospel message there, right? Right? Not in that context. He's not talking about anything relating to spiritual salvation there. He's talking about some that uh, are about to jump ship to escape, to hopefully save their lives, but the storm is too stormy. They will drown. Their only hope is to stay on the ship physically. Somebody look up Philippians 1.19 as another example. Uh, and since you're in 27, David, read verse 34. Got it? I have Philippians 1.19. Where's David? Let's let him read 34 first, and then, uh, Mary Lee, you can read Philippians. David left the ship. I'm not here. Oh, okay. 34, go ahead. Oh, 34 as well? Yeah. Wherefore, I pray you take some meat. Right. Acts 27 again? Yep. Wherefore I pray to take some meat, for this is for your health, for there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. The word health there, this is for your salvation. Okay? Same word. Has nothing to do with spiritual or eternal damnation. It has to do with the physical danger of the storm there. Now the word in the New Testament... The noun, let's see, the noun form is used six times, and the verb form, sozo, is used, I counted, 40 times in relationship to physical danger, having nothing to do with anything spiritual. Go ahead and read Philippians 9. This is another example in the New Testament. Philippians 19. Or 119, I'm sorry. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Okay. What's Paul talking about? Is he talking about deliverance from hell? The American Standard give you a little hint there. It's, it's the word so-so. Or Being released it, from prison. Yeah. Or maybe it's the noun form. I think it's, it's, it's the noun form. Soteria in Philippians 1.19. Yeah. The release from prison, as Mary Lee makes clear there. Yeah, he's talking about his deliverance from a physical situation. The word is used, in fact, you might even say fewer times in terms of spiritual salvation than it is used in terms of physical danger. Okay, but it is used in a theological sense and it's used in three senses. We've gone over this many, many times, so let me do it very quickly. There's a sense where the word can be used in its past tense sense. And in some contexts, it is equivalent to justification, but not in uh, this passage. And that's salvation from the penalty of sin. Remember this slide? We've used it quite often. It can be used, and it's used in the book of Romans, in terms of a future sense to refer to glorification. That's a salvation from the presence of sin. And if it's used in the past tense sense, and it's used in a future sense, what might you expect? Present. You might expect to find some usages in terms of the present tense sense. Another word that is used is sanctification. That's salvation from the power of sin. And by the way, if you do a word study, you're going to find that this word group is used as many times in this present tense sense as it is used in terms of that uh, once for all justification sense, salvation from hell, if you will, or from the ultimate penalty of sin. In this context, I think what Paul is talking about here, it's in a Jewish context, And what he's delineating here, if I can get down here, the Jewish context refers to, he uses the word salvation in 10.1. We already saw that. And I think he's talking about this very comprehensive sense that it includes every aspect. Remember I briefly talked about it and said we'd look at it in more detail when we got to verse 9. Here we are. I think Paul is precise in his usage of the word sozo or soteria, and he distinguishes it from dikaiasune or dikaias or the verbal form. 
Verse 10, we already saw it. And remember the context, the word near you has a context that Deuteronomy 30, he's dealing with the nation of Israel and their corporate salvation. He's not talking about necessarily justification by faith in Deuteronomy. That word that you can access to live a righteous, blessed life in, in the land is near, is near you. Now, he's taking that and bringing it in this context. So that's the context. Verse 10, for with the heart a person believes. In other words, it's an internal experience. Believing, resulting in what? Righteousness. Justification. That's the same word there. Resulting in at least declaring righteousness. Now, it may spill over into... The living out of righteousness, but I think there's a distinction. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in what? Well, for a Jew in the first century, and this is true of the context with Jesus as well, for a Jew to confess Jesus, what would happen to a Jew? He'd be, cast he'd be thrown out, out of the synagogue. He'd be thrown out of the synagogue. He'd be cast out of his family. He'd be disowned. He would be shunned. He might even be persecuted. That's why Jesus makes a stress there. You're going to have to make a radical break here. If you confess him as Lord, as Messiah, there's going to be some consequences. In the first century, for a Jew to confess Jesus as Lord is cast out. And what that means is in that casting out, now he's going to be disassociated with Israel, and that's going to result in physical salvation of probably 70 A.D. He's not going to experience the destruction that's going to take place in the temple and in Jerusalem and in the entire nation. He's going to be cast out. He's not going to be associated with the Jews. He's going to be looked upon as a Gentile, basically, even by the Roman Empire. And he will be delivered. You could use the word delivered there. So this is after, I think, believing and receiving justification. And now, as you confess that now you are associated with Messiah, and if you're Jewish, you're going to be ostracized, and you will result or you will receive the results of the ostracization, you might say, and you'll experience uh, deliverance from 70 A.D. Does that make sense? It does. That's the broader context, and that gives you kind of the fuller idea. So the uh, judgment is a ju- uh, or a salvation from the coming judgment. Uh, and the, the wording there is a little vague, it's not real clear, but I think what he's alluding to here, now Paul, when he's writing the book of Romans, doesn't know the specific date, but he does know that because Israel has rejected her Messiah, Paul knows Old Testament prophecy, and he's going to bring some of this out later on in the same passage, he knows that there's judgment is inevitable, and for those Jewish people, they can experience a physical deliverance. And ultimately, when uh, these passages begin to take place at the end of the age, there's going to be a tribulation period. And a lot of the passages in the Olivet Discourse that deal with salvation deal with that ultimate salvation. And Paul's going to deal with that in chapter 11, when all Israel shall be saved. Okay, got it? So there's going to be an ultimate restoration when Israel calls upon the name of the Lord. In other words, calls upon Jesus as God himself. Future ultimate restoration that can be experienced on an individual basis in the first century. There's your... Right, can I ask a quick question? What did you mean in that first one? Jewish C-O-M-P. I didn't catch that. Comprehensive salvation. Ah, comprehensive. That includes justification by, in fact, it has to begin with justification by faith, but it also involves a a life of seeking righteousness, and it includes an ultimate uh, restoration of the nation, 
and that ultimate salvation of the nation that he'll talk about in chapter 11. And what we're going to see in the next verse is the calling on the name of the Lord in verse 11. Same context, taking us back to Deuteronomy 30. So, do you understand Romans 10, 9, and 10 now? Or is this heresy? Well, I have to get back with you on that question of heresy. <laughs> now, we're just talking about Romans 10, 9, and 10. Don't bring in all these other things. <laughs> oh, oh, no, let's you've basically stated that this particular couple verses is purely eschatological and not personal. No, I didn't, no I, I didn't say purely. I'd say that it has uh, an eschatological element to it. We can't discount it. Okay, well, let's just say that I'm going to put on my Acts 17.11 here in a little while. Very good, very good. Ray, okay. I would say what is heresy is that there's two conditions of salvation. I would uh, agree with that. Very good. Very good. Hey, Ray, in a nutshell, could you describe the fallacy of lordship salvation? Well, it focuses on uh, giving evidence for your belief. In other words, basically what Mary Lee was bringing out in terms of if you can't see any evidence of it, then more than likely you never really truly believed. In other words, you just gave uh, assent to the facts, but never believed in the heart. Now, I didn't camp on the word heart there. I think that's brought out by many people. Um, What is the fallacy in that? Well, I don't think that's the thrust of this passage. It's not lordship salvation. I'm not saying that you shouldn't live a life in accordance with what you have uh, believed. There should be some consistency there. But it's not a condition of salvation and not necessarily an evidence of it. Right. Right. I think, um, this is Katie, I think it gives hope to those who are on their deathbed and final moments of life. You know, if they believe, there's really not much time to produce the fruits of the Spirit for the last final moments of their life. But as long as they have faith, they, um, they will you know, be saved right. um, eternally. So it's nothing they can do right. um, in addition to right. believing that this is Lord. Is, does that, that, that's kind of what I'm yeah, getting that, from this. But even, even like, on their deathbed, on the even on their deathbed, they could confess. In other words, yes, I, uh, I'm publicly proclaiming it. Okay. But, but yeah, salvation on the basis of faith, by grace alone. I watched a, uh, a YouTube video recently of Ray Comfort uh, encountering a Jehovah's Witness and grilling him with that very question about performance and about what about if someone's on their deathbed and, and they said, well, you need to have you need to have demonstrated this over time. And he said, well, I'm 30 seconds from dying. Help me. Yeah, exactly. What do I do? I what do I do? Love, I love Ray Comfort. Yes, he's he's awesome. Yeah, so that was the that was the answer to them, and that's the answer to lordship salvation as well. Right. Yeah, I I think there was a guy hanging on a cross once that had that problem. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. That's the point you brought. Pastor Ray, this is Janie. Oh, Pastor. Oh, 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 no. Oh, Oh, no. I'm going to mute you. (laughs) (laughs) Mute her her quick. (laughs) Verse 9. Verse 9. So it would appear to attest to the fact that you you have to believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, that that's necessary for salvation? I think you have to have uh, an understanding that would include deity, that Jesus is in fact God. You may not quite understand it all, but you understand that he could not do what he did apart from being God. Faith on what he did on the cross, only God could do that. Only God could Take the sins of the world. Closing thought. Encourage people to trust or have faith in Christ alone. No confessing, no baptism, no works. For justification, the initial stage, we could call that salvation. And any confessing, anything afterwards relates to sanctification and or growth. 
All righty. Uh, we've gone a little bit over our time, but uh, I guess that's okay, right? It is. We need to have somebody close for us. Anyone want to do that? Our Father and our God, we do pray that uh, the understanding that uh, salvation comes through faith in Christ and faith alone uh, would contribute to our assurance of the truth of that of that matter. And for those who live uh, lives of doubt about whether they're saved or not, uh, because they their deeds do not appear to be uh, as good as they think maybe they should be. We we pray, Father, that they will come to understand that faith and faith alone leads to salvation so that they'll have the assurance of that. And uh, so help us, Lord, to uh, encourage others uh, to, to not only believe, uh, but to have assurance of the consequences and the reality and truth of uh, eternal life through faith. And faith alone. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Ray. See you later, Ray. See you all later, guys. Bye. Let us know when we start. Have a good week. Good week. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Ray. Hey.